I had impressions of Ferguson before the uh, tragedy, and it, they were neutral. I just didn't see a lot here. I brought my mother down here because it says it's a historic area. We drove down this very road, and I didn't see anything historic. And I thought, well, I don't know what they're promoting because this is pretty boring. It was a Sunday night. That was my impression of Ferguson. So when the incident happened where the policeman killed Michael Brown and all this upset, I was like, Ferguson? <laughs> Come on. Just very ordinary place. This is Ferguson Voices, Disrupting the Frame, a moral courage project presented by Proof, Media for Social Justice, and the University of Dayton Human Rights Center. I'm Jada Woods. Our team set out to understand what happened in the 100 days that followed the shooting of Michael Brown on August 9th, 2014. What we discovered by immersing ourselves in the community and through listening to the people who witnessed and shaped the events complicated the binary narrative of Ferguson as being only about black versus white or protester versus police. This is our attempt to do justice to the experiences people shared with us and lift up the moments, choices, and actions taken by ordinary people in the Ferguson community. These are their stories. Act one, the real Ferguson. There's very little that's unusual about Ferguson. Walking down South Florissant, you pass a coffee shop, a wine bar, a microbrewery, a hardware store, the public library and police station. A 21st century vision of Midwest Main Street, USA. American flags, yard signs, banners promoting the farmer's market and community events. Nothing extraordinary, cutesy, quaint, comfortable, quietly bordering on mundane. West Florissant is also unremarkable, although it's more commercial, with a wider roadway, more bus stops and stores, including many big name franchises clustered in strip malls. Not unlike any other random place that you grew up in or had the occasion to drive through on the way to somewhere else. The two major avenues zigzagging around Delwood were the sites of protests in the 100 days that followed the shooting of Michael Brown. But you wouldn't know it. The streets of Ferguson transformed during that period and then receded back to normalcy, or whatever normal meant to residents of North County prior to 2014. Ferguson isn't a city. It is not urban in any sense of that word. It is an outer ring suburb one of 92 small municipalities that surround St. Louis. Without trying, you can walk through several towns by accident because of how they are carved out, weaving through each other. Jennings, Normandy, Berkeley, Cool Valley, Kinlock. While others were drawn to Ferguson for its quality of life and diverse communities, others were warned to avoid Ferguson and its notorious police force. To the rest of us, the outsiders, the observers, the onlookers, Ferguson has come to mean much more and that meaning takes the place of the reality of what the town is actually like. The experiences of those who live there can teach us about the real Ferguson, not the one we saw on the news or the one that's been invented in our minds. The real Ferguson sounds quiet. It sounded quiet before the summer of 2014. For some, that quiet masked a known violent subtext something that everyone knew but few discussed publicly. While for others, quiet feels like peace. In many cases, quiet means nothing at all. Because it's a close community, people know everybody, people walk, people say hi, people are nice. 
Sandy Sansevere is a White Ferguson community member, 30 years standing, and lifetime North County resident. She and a group of others love her town so much. After the 2014 protests and riots, she threw her retirement list away and helped found an organization based on that love called I Heart Ferguson, which she now runs as a full-time volunteer. There was five people that got together at the coffee house and there, we just went through two major tornadoes and, you know, we're rebuilding and just in the last five years. So it's, and uh, so everybody comes together, everybody helps everybody, everybody, you know, rebuilds together like we always do. We've given three checks now for a total of 15000 and today, in one month's time, we are donating a total of $50,000 in one presentation to reinvest North County, Inc. And uh, this is uh, for all the businesses in the Ferguson community area that received damage due to looting uh, after the grand jury decision. And we uh, hope to contribute more in the future, but this is a sizable check, uh, which will help some of the families through the Christmas season to make their life a little easier. Uh, we got Sandy Santander, our main volunteer with us here today, and all these other wonderful volunteers. We're sporting our new I Love Ferguson hats, which are now for sale. So they're $10, a fantastic price for the holiday. For that last minute need you have for a gift. The organization operates a storefront on South Florissant, selling t-shirts, bumper stickers, tote bags, maps, posters, and nearly any kind of souvenir or memorabilia. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. The people I meet in here, you don't know who's going to walk in here. People just want to come in and talk or vent. So you just listen. People come in from all different places. They have a layover at the airport. They want to come see Ferguson. We had memorabilia in all 50 states by December of 2014. And now we have 56 countries. And I say we're loved by everybody around the world. But not necessarily loved by all neighbors. You know. And then there's a select group of people that choose to be divided. And uh, I have a feeling we're not gonna be able to change that because they're anti, especially the ones that live here, um, they're, they're just anti-American. You know, they drag the flag on the ground, they step on it, they don't stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance, they laugh, they turn their backs, you know, so I don't, I don't get all that. Sandy is willing to talk about race in her community and how she doesn't see it. Although she knows people who've seen discrimination, she says she has never witnessed a moment when someone was treated differently due to the color of their skin. I wouldn't say the color of the skin, but I would say, like, when my husband was in high school, he was a hippie, so he got pulled over all the time. <laughs> and his car searched all the time. <laughs> but he had long hair, and, you know, he was profiled that way. I mean, I grew up, we had... I was good friends with, I think we only had three black people in our high school, or one of the classes, and I was good friends with them. You know, I, we, I grew up with uh, my mom babysitting and stuff, and we never seen the color of skin. We never, I mean, sure, but we were never prejudiced, ever. So my son-in-law's black, and he thinks he gets profiled. But, you know, when you run through a stop sign 
and you don't have brake lights. <laughs> I'm like, Anthony, it doesn't work that way. You gotta get that. But anyway, he's so cute. Sandy's real Ferguson has changed a lot over the last generation. Demographics shifted as middle-class black families moved from the city into the suburbs. In 1970, Ferguson was less than 1% African-American, and today that number is up over two-thirds. As the Department of Justice reported, despite making up 67% of the population, African-Americans accounted for 85% of all traffic stops, 90% of all citations, and 93% of all arrests by the Ferguson Police Department from 2012 through 2014. These figures demonstrate a rampant pattern of racism and policing that Sandy doesn't know about or acknowledge. Safeguarding Sandy's rosy view of her Ferguson are a set of assumptions about the place she calls home based on her immediate experiences. However, assumptions often blind us to what's real right in front of us. When the unrest erupted on our TV and computer screens this summer of 2014, many of us felt compelled to take a side, black or blue. And most of us felt forced to choose based on our own assumptions. But blue on Darren Wilson and other corrupt Ferguson officers did not and does not look the same on every police officer, even in Ferguson's own department. I started the bike patrol here in 1995. I figured if we can get people, cops on bikes, and get them out of cars, the community would love that, and it would be good for us. Officer Greg Kasem, a member of the Ferguson PD since 1989, approaches his job focused on his role in the community. Like that quick trip that burned down, that was a great place to communicate with the public. To me, I could go there... 8 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, midnight because it was 24 hours, I would sit there, get me a drink, and just talk to people. Now, that area there, Canfield and Sharon, they call me Casey. That's my nickname over there. They call me Casey. So they would tell me problems, with whether it's in their own home or outside of their home, because they, they felt comfortable. I never put, I would want you to talk to me. I don't want kids to be scared of me. Those parents that say, you better watch it or you take it to jail, that hurts me. Because I don't want a kid to feel that he can't approach me. I want families to approach me because you know what? There are problems that we can't see. Pick up one of his baseball cards and see him in Anak, the only canine police team in America trained in Tagalog, the language of his native Philippines. Anak means child. I would love for you guys to meet him because he's a big dog. He's scary, 115 scary pounds. But man, he's got a, he's got a heart like a puppy. Kasem's empathy comes in part from his time in the military and in part because he used to be that kid, running away from home, getting bad grades, after his mother left him and his brother with their father when he was a year old. And I was either going to go to uh, go to jail, go to the Army. So I went to the Army. And I think at that point, I woke up. I woke up. One of the things that I found here in this city is I communicate with a lot of the young kids because I know that life. I can teach them and tell them that's a bad avenue to follow. So if I had a problem with, like, Ricky, I'd rather go to Ricky and if I have a problem with Ricky, I'd rather go to Ricky's mother. 
because that's what I found works, not the system. I was part of that system. So if I could help them and help the mother and fathers and grandmothers and aunties, if I can build a unity within those families and let them see that they're all, their kids are good kids, they're just stuck in a bad situation. So what I would do is I'd, we have a frosty treat. We have an ice cream place here, literally ice cream trucks. So I would go over there and I'd say, hey, 1230, can you go to Winners? Here's 20 bucks. I'm buying the kids ice cream. So they would, they would meet the truck and I, and they would ring their thing, and the kids would all run out there, and I said, ice cream on me. Okay? So the ice cream was on me. So now you got all the families watching this. I'm building something here. I'm building trust. Then he would be doing his job. He would protect, build trust, by buying ice cream for kids, by talking out problems before simply acting on them. But Kasem would prove to be an exception to the rule of the real Ferguson. I am a true product of Ferguson. Grew up and went to her schools, graduated from her schools, and, and was determined to live in spite of, opposed to as a result of, if that makes sense. Rachel Prouty grew up in Ferguson, then moved to the South for college and graduate school. Rachel migrated to Louisiana and stayed there for 15 years, racking up a bachelor's and master's degree and began the pursuit of a doctorate in education before returning home to Ferguson. They would call the police on us for being too loud as we walked to and from school. Neighbors would let their dogs out, would allow their children to call us all types of niggers and get your black ass out of you know, just various situations. But one in particular instance sticks out in my mind and it kind of, paved or kind of etched not necessarily my feelings about police but the world in general um after church going to it at the time it was on um in the downtown ferguson area there was a a place called menino's market and next to it was an ice cream place i forget the name of the the ice cream place that we would stop there sometimes, never at night, to go get ice cream. It's just this particular time we had gotten out of church earlier than what we used to. I was Kojic raised, and anybody who knows anything about Kojic churches know that we're in church all day. <laughs> um, so we just happened to get out a little bit early and, and went to go get some ice cream at the ice cream place. Me, my mother, and my older brother and younger brother, my siblings, um, the only black individuals there and... uh it was it was not too far walking distance from the police station pulled up on us and stopped and said, uh, isn't it time for you niggas to get home? My mom is is a fair skin, as they would say, light skin, lighter skin lady. And she turned tomato red to which my older brother responded. Of course, you know, we no one said anything. You know, some people were kind of taken aback. Some people laughed. Some people even repeated it. And um my older brother, you know, having to defend his mother at the very least <clears throat> said, if we some niggas, your mama a nigga too. To which the police officer who made the statement in the first place responded, bitch, don't you think you ought to tame that little bastard? And pulled off. Um, I guess I kind of looked around to just see it was one of those things where you're outside of yourself and it was like, God, I'm ready to go home now. Like, it wasn't too much of embarrassment. It was just, I wish I was anywhere but there. We kind of looked at my mom for like a cue of how to react 
to to this is something that's never happened. It certainly never happened in Kenlock. It did not happen in Berkeley. It did not happen in St. Louis City or Normandy. This was a Ferguson thing um, because it was one of the areas that was just wider than the rest in North St. Louis County. And um, she sat there and just ate her ice cream. I don't think she really knew what else to do. And now that I'm I'm an adult, I still don't quite understand why she sat there. Um, But more striking to me was the fact that no one said anything. Not that this was wrong, not that this was inappropriate, and even that no one said anything is that she didn't. We didn't go to the police station to complain. We didn't say anything to the mayor. We didn't go to any city council meetings to say anything about it. We ate it. We dealt with it and we went home. Um, fast forward to 2014, it was that the first thing I thought of when I, I heard and I heard from my mother. She was very upset about Michael Brown's passing and immediately I caught myself blaming her almost because they did not do anything when we were children um, when this type of behavior would go on. So that's one of the, the issues or one of the incidents that I think I'll never, ever, ever forget because it was the first and I want to say only time that I can recall that I've ever been to my face called a nigger, ever. It's interesting, the the various narratives of, of police interactions, because even as a small child, I understood very quickly that there were places that we weren't going to be allowed to go comfortably um, and to a point where our parents would tell us just not to go altogether, very public places like the park, um, the library, after school programs and et cetera. So it was it was a I, I, to put it in perspective, I left Ferguson after high school and went to the deep south for for college. So that kind of, when people ask, okay, well, what was it like growing up in Ferguson? That's pretty much my spiel. I left Ferguson to go to the Deep South for 15 years. The real Ferguson does not end when you pass that sign telling you that you've left. Ferguson no longer has borders. Ferguson is everywhere. Ferguson is an idea. Ferguson is a symbol. Ferguson is a repository for our hopes and fears. Ferguson is all of these things, wrapped in two streets named Florissant rolled into an unsuspecting town of 20,000 located north of St. Louis that never wanted the name it would come to bear. Ferguson Voices Disrupting the Frame is a podcast, multimedia exhibit, and storytelling website. Visit fergusonvoices.com for the integrated experience, which includes photography and additional interview excerpts. Thank you to the people of Ferguson, Missouri, who participated in this project and trusted us with their stories. The Ferguson Voices podcast is a collaboration produced by Joel Pruce and the Moral Courage Project team, written by Amanda D. and Joel Pruce, narrated by Jada Woods, and mixed by Brett Sanderson, with original music from Lush Life. For more Lush Life, check out his recent mixtape, Idols and Enemies, and visit Lush Life online at theyoungandinlove.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so each new episode of Ferguson Voices lands in your feed once it's released. Ferguson Voices is available on iTunes, Google Play, and other platforms. If you like what you hear, hit us up with a solid rating and share these stories with friends.